Hi guys, and welcome to the Pint, Pipe, and Cross podcast. This is Robert, and that is it for today. Uh, So, we ran into some technological difficulties. Uh, That's probably hard for you guys to believe, considering how savvy James and I tend to be. Uh, Long story short, we recorded what is possibly the greatest podcast in the world, and my mic wasn't turned on. Yep, that's Robert. Uh, My mic was not turned on. James was, and so we're going to have to do it again. Uh, We recorded on what is manliness. Uh, It was phenomenal. You guys would have all been really impressed. Uh, This is not that podcast. This is a tribute. So, uh, really quick, just to get a few things out of the way, what you can look forward to, we're going to be recording again when we get time, uh, but that episode was about the masculine genius, so we've all heard about the feminine genius before. Uh, One of our buddies, and by buddies I mean a guy that emailed us, Dan Sinoski, will say, Uh, who's a student at Drexel University in Philadelphia. He and some of his buddies have started listening to Pint, Pipe, and Cross. Uh, Thank you, Natalie, for uh, turning them on to that. Uh, Natalie's one of my good friends from college. Uh, So shout out to Natalie, I guess. But uh, anyway, uh, great things are going on there from what I've heard. And uh, Dan requested that we do a podcast talking about What is it to be a good man? Well, yeah, just a good man. Uh, What is the virtue of manliness? Now, I find myself particularly equipped to answer this question, seeing as how when I was in college, I wrote a 24-page paper for advanced ethical theory on the nature of the virtue of manliness. Also, James has a great beard. So I think we're going to do a good job with it when we uh, get around to recording it again. Um, So Dan, it's been great emailing back and forth with you. We appreciate your guys' support for the podcast. Everybody else, uh, we would love to hear from you and any future topics that you'd like to hear about. So I think that pretty well does it with the introduction. Not to leave you guys hanging, uh, we will be recording a couple of shorter episodes in between here and then. Uh, Today I am uh, actually in a pretty janky setup in my room right now. I've got my laptop on a pile of books. I've got my microphone at my standing desk. Uh, And we're going to talk today a little bit about Stephen Pressfield's The Warrior Ethos. So this is a short book that Stephen Pressfield wrote just kind of analyzing, looking at a little bit of what it, what uh, the virtues of a warrior, what the morality of the warrior really looks like, what makes a soldier a good soldier. Uh, so let's go ahead and dive right in. Okay, so I'm going to start in the middle of the book. So this this book, just so you guys are aware, is less than a hundred pages. Uh, and the pages are very small, not filled with too many words. I would highly recommend that you guys pick up this book. Again, it's called The Warrior Ethos by Stephen Pressfield. A really good 
book. Uh, actually, when I first started reading it, I uh, would read it while sitting on the toilet. Uh, each little reflection is a, a pretty good length for uh, you know a nice clean evacuation. Um, anyway, uh, so starting in the middle, there's a few things that I want to point out in here. So again, the warrior ethos, the warrior mindset or morality, um, what makes a warrior a good warrior? So Pressfield says, the opposite of fear is love. The greatest counterpoise to fear the ancients believed is love. The love of the individual warrior for his brothers and arms. At Thermopylae, on the final... I should probably have explained this first. Uh, Stephen Pressfield wrote a really great book about the battle at Thermopylae, which is the battle... um, where the 300 Spartans stood up and sacrificed their lives to slow down the Persian army. Uh, Not to stop the Persian army, not to defeat them, but to slow them down so that the Spartans and other Greeks would have time to mobilize. Now, the movie 300 is incredibly historically inaccurate. The main theme is correct, uh, but the majority of it is just fantasy. The movie 300 was literally written based off of a comic book, uh, by, um, oh shoot, what's his name? Uh, I, I'm blanking on his name right now, but it's, it's based off a comic book. Uh, Stephen Pressfield wrote Gates of Fire, which is what Thermopylae translates to. Uh, really, really good book, really inspiring book. Uh, another one that I'd highly recommend that you guys pick up. So when he's talking about Thermopylae, this is where 300 Spartans and actually several thousand other Greeks uh, came together to defend this small pass to try to kill off enough of the Persians and to slow them down long enough that by the time they got to mainland Greece, the other Greeks could have prepared themselves. So anyway, back to what I was saying. At Thermopylae on the final morning, When the last surviving Spartans knew that they were all going to die, they turned to one of their leaders, the warrior Dionikis, and asked him what thoughts they should hold in their minds in this final hour to keep their courage strong. Dionikis instructed his comrades to fight not in the name of such lofty concepts as patriotism, honor, duty, or glory. Don't even fight, he said, to protect your family or your home. Fight for this alone, the man who stands at your shoulder. He is everything, and everything is contained within him. The soldier's prayer today on the eve of battle remains not, Lord, spare me, but, Lord, let me not prove unworthy of my brothers. So he says, he continues, Civilians wonder at the passion displayed by wounded soldiers to get back to their units, to return to the fight, But soldiers understand. It is no marvel to them that men who have lost arms and legs still consider themselves fit for battle. So powerful is the passion to return to their brothers and not to let them down. And I think we see this, uh, my commentary for a second, I think we see this a lot of the time in our experience on, uh, you know, athletic teams, um, possibly on, you know, your team at work, if you really do have a close fraternity there, uh, where... Oftentimes, it's a much more powerful motivator for us to do well when we know that uh, when we fail, we're going to be letting down our brothers or our coworkers or our teammates. Pressfield continues, 
all warrior cultures train their youths to feel this love. They make the young men on the passage to warriorhood dress alike, eat and sleep alike, speak alike, wear their hair alike, suffer alike, and achieve victory alike. Ordeals of initiation are undergone not as individuals, but as teams, as units. Courage is inseparable from love and leads to what may arguably be the noblest of warrior virtues, selflessness. And so back to my commentary a little bit. Uh, Watch Band of Brothers. Uh, It's a 10-part miniseries put out by HBO uh, about Easy Company in World War II. And Easy Company um, was always in the worst part of the battle, and they always came out on top. And a big part of what a lot of these soldiers contribute that to is their, cha- is their training together, where they were trained harder and put through more hell for no reason. And their commanding officer was kind of a genius when he was doing this because it solidified them as a team, and they were all punished as a unit, and they were all rewarded as a unit. And so they didn't want to let down their brothers. Um, so uh, moving back into it, Plutarch. So this is the next chapter, selflessness. So you see that? That was what I just read. That was one chapter. This is such an easy book to read. You guys can do it. Uh, selflessness. Plutarch asked, why do the Spartans punish with a fine the warrior who loses his helmet or spear, but punish with death the warrior who loses his shield? So this is, this is kind of weird. If you lose your spear, if you lose your helmet, you're punished with a fine. But if you lose your shield, you are punished with death. Why? Because helmet and spear are carried for the protection of the individual alone, but the shield protects every man in the line. And so they didn't actually do this in the movie 300, but what they were supposed to do as a Greek phalanx Uh, which is the type of formation that they would go into battle with. They would stand shoulder to shoulder with their shields in their left arm, and my shield would not just protect myself, but it would also be overlapping with the shield of the men next to me, creating this impenetrable wall of wood and brass. Um, Or not brass, bronze. Uh, And so I'm punished with death when I let my brothers next to me down because I'm putting them at risk. The group comes before the individual. This tenet is central to the warrior ethos. Once Alexander was leading his army through a waterless desert, the column was strung out for miles with men and horses suffering terribly from thirst. Suddenly, a detachment of scouts came galloping to the king. They had found a small spring and had managed to fill up a helmet with water. They rushed to Alexander and presented this to him. The army held in place watching. Every man's eye was fixed upon his commander. Alexander thanked his scouts for bringing him this gift. Then, without touching a drop, he lifted the helmet and poured the precious liquid into the sand. At once a great cheer ascended, rolling like thunder from one end of the column to the other. A man was heard to say, With a king like this to lead us, no force on earth can stand against us. And he talks elsewhere, Pressfield, in another one of his chapters about uh, leading by example. Um, But we won't talk about that here. 
There's another story of Alexander when he was getting ready to march out from Macedonia to commence his assault on the Persian Empire. He called the entire army together, officers and men, for a great festival at a place called Dium on the Magnesian Magnesian coast? Some coast. Uh, When they... All, when, all the, when all the army had assembled, Alexander began giving away everything he owned. To the generals, he gave great country estates, all properties of the crown. He gave timberlands to the colonels, fishing grounds, mining concessions, and hunting preserves to his mid-rank officers. Every sergeant got a farm. Even privates received cottages and pasture lands and cattle. But the climax of this extraordinary evening, his soldiers were begging their king to stop. What, one of his friends asked, will you keep for yourself? My hopes, said Alexander. Selflessness produces courage because it binds men together and proves each individual, proves to each individual that he is not alone. The act of open-handedness evokes desire in the recipient to give back. Alexander's men knew from their king's spectacular gestures of generosity that the spoils of any victory they won would be shared with them too, and that their young commander would not hoard the bounty himself. We in our day know from history that this was no calculated gesture or grandstanding stunt on Alexander's part. It sprung from the most authentic passions of his heart. He truly cared nothing for material things. He loved his men, and his heart was set on glory and the achievement of great things. Another time, Alexander's army was struggling through the mountain in the dead of winter. One old soldier came struggling into camp, so frozen from the blizzard that he could no longer see or hear. Troops around the fire cleared a seat for the veteran, prepared a hot broth for him, and helped thaw him out. When the ancient soldier had recovered enough to comprehend his surroundings, he realized that the young warrior who had given him his seat by the fire was Alexander himself. At once the veteran leapt to his feet, apologizing for taking the king's place. No, my friend, said Alexander, setting a hand on the man's shoulder and making him sit again. For you are Alexander more even than I. So he associates himself with the other, You are Alexander even more than I. A certain you have a right to the goods which I possess. Because it is proper that Alexander thinks more of his soldiers than he thinks of himself. Now, this is a far cry from Christian charity, but we can see a relation here. uh, That amongst soldiers, there is a deep selflessness, a deep association with the other that is necessary to build this bro- this bond of brotherhood. Um, so, you know, within our own lives, you know, where can we look for those teams to develop those brotherhoods, those tribes, uh, to be a support for us? Uh, Anthony Esselin said, uh, a soldier alone is no soldier. A soldier alone is no soldier. If you try to go this battle alone, you will fail. You will die. We talked last week about Exodus 90. Uh, Fraternity is a vital part of that, and I've seen that. And when one of the brothers is struggling, 
we all feel the temptation. There's a real spiritual bond between us. And I've noticed myself that when I'm struggling, when I reach out to one of my brothers for support, the temptation flees. It runs. Satan runs from me because he knows that I am stronger. And when I stop thinking so much about myself and when I'm more concerned with the good of my brothers, it's not even hard for me to sacrifice anymore. I don't count the loss. It's this selflessness, this stepping out of myself that allows for heroic virtues. I think this is one of the reasons why so many saints thought so little of themselves. It's because they looked so little at themselves. They were much more concerned with those around them. They didn't have time to stop and look at their own virtues because they were so concerned for the brothers, for their sisters. Now, uh, let's jump towards the back a little bit. A couple more things that I want to talk about before I close out for this episode. I really hope that you guys can hear this. I did a sound check and I think it's working, but I don't really know how any of this stuff works. Uh, my brother offered to be our producer, and we need to take him up on this. We need to make sure to get this, uh, to make this a quality production. You guys deserve better than what we've been giving you, but hell, something's better than nothing. So the warrior archetype. Young, so this is Carl Young, a psychologist, was a student of myths and legends of the unconscious. He discovered an, and named the collective unconscious, meaning that part of the psyche that is common to all cult cultures and all eras and at all times. So he's looking for what are these commonalities amongst all human beings in every culture in every period, and he calls this the collective unconscious, sort of the... Uh, psychological instinct of humanity. The collective unconscious, Jung said, contains the stored wisdom of the human race, accumulated over thousands of generations. The collective unconscious is the software we're born with. It's our package of instincts and proverbial knowledge. Within this package, Jung discovered what he called the archetypes. Archetypes are larger than life, mythic scale personifications of the stages that we pass through as we mature. The youth, the lover, the wanderer, the joker, the king or queen, the wise man, the mystic. Legendary tales like that of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table are populated by archetypes. What he means by that is just about everybody fits into one of these roles. Movies are full of archetypes. Even a deck of cards has archetypes. King, Queen, Joker, and Jack. I don't know if that really proves anything, but like, I guess it's interesting. Uh, arch archetypes serve the purpose of guiding us as we grow. Each new archetype kicks in at each stage. It makes the new phase feel right and seem natural. One of the primary archetypes is the warrior. The warrior archetype exists across all eras and nations and is virtually identical in every culture. In their book, King, Warrior, Magician, Lover, authors Robert Moore and Douglas Gillette 
tell us that the human individual matures from archetype to archetype. Uh, Another book that I'd point out, uh, and Dan, we've given you this recommendation, uh, pass it on other people. So um, James really likes the book Wild at Heart. Um, really good book looking at the masculine heart. Uh, you know, what are the deepest desires of man? Uh, and there's a, so, uh, this is by, um, uh, what's his name? John, the, the, the name Everett is stuck in my head, but that's not right. John, well, if you look up wild at heart, I'm going to look this up right now. Bear with me. Guys, I'm sorry, this is embarrassing. Um, So this man, John, and his wife uh, also wrote a um, female counterpart to this called Captivating. Um, Let's see here. John Eldridge, that's right. Okay, so John Eldridge wrote the book Wild at Heart. Uh, It's looking at, like, what is the man's soul? What are the deepest desires in a man's heart? And he and his wife wrote Captivating, which is the female counterpart, which from what I, I haven't read it, but from what I've heard, it is not quite as good as Wild at Heart, but is still worthwhile. Um, but there's actually another book. He's, I mean, he's written many books, but there's another one that I like even better. Uh, it's called Way of the Wild Heart. And in Way of the Wild Heart, he lays out different stages of growth and maturity. Um, and he talks about what are the lessons that a man needs to learn in each one of these stages. So, uh, that's another book I'd recommend you guys pick up. If you guys listen to anything I say, you are going to have a very long reading list. Now, back to what I was saying, uh, read Way of the Wild Heart. Pressfield continues, a boy, for instance, evolves sequentially through the youth, the wanderer, the lover, the warrior, through husband and father to teacher, king, sage, and mystic. The warrior archetype clicks in like a biological clock sometime in the early to mid-teens. We join a gang. We try out for the football team. We hang with our homies. We drive fast. We take crazy chances. We seek adventure and hazard. That'll change later. When the husband-father archetype kicks in, we'll trade in our 500-horsepower Mustang and buy a Prius. But not yet. For now, the warrior archetype has seized us. Something inside us makes us want to jump out of airplanes and blow stuff up. Something makes us seek out mentors, tough old sergeants, to put us through hell, to push us past our limits, to find out what we're capable of. And we seek out comrades in arms, brothers who will get our backs and will get theirs, lifelong friends who are just as crazy as we are. And so a big part of this warrior stage is proving that you have what it takes, that you are a dangerous son of a bitch. So we need to embrace this. And unfortunately, I think modern society today likes to... uh, crush, we'll say, this instinct, this desire to be dangerous. Oh, well, dangerous is bad. Aggression is bad. Competition is bad. Brothers, this is who we are. And I think to a certain extent, women have 
some sort of parallel to this, whether we want to call that the warrior archetype or if there's a more appropriate name, I'm not sure. Women make no sense. But we can say for sure of men that there is some drive in us that we need to know that we're dangerous. And this is, you know, when I talked about the new barbarians about two and a half months ago, I think it was, uh, that was part of my point there. We need to re-embrace this tribal warrior feel. We need to know that we're dangerous because until we know that we're dangerous, we're not going to step up to do good. We won't think that we have what it takes to make a difference. Before I can choose to be meek, I need to know that I'm capable of dominating. And this, you know, might not be PC, but look around you and see guys who are physically impressive. See guys who know how to fight. Look for guys who've done martial arts. You know, when you talk to a lot of fighters, they tend to be the gentlest men in day-to-day conversation because they have nothing to prove. We get overly aggressive in our lives when we think that we have something to prove. And we only think we have something to prove when we don't know that we have what it takes. So my brothers, we need to embrace this warrior's challenge. We need to treat ourselves harshly. Uh, there's, I'm trying to remember where I first heard this line, but I love it, that civilizations rise in wooden shoes and fall in glass slippers. If you want to be great... You need to make yourself uncomfortable. We've made ourselves soft in this civilized culture. And it'll destroy us. We won't be tough enough to deal with the challenges that are coming towards us. And many of these challenges, let me just emphasize, are of a spiritual nature. If you are soft, you cannot deny yourself the pleasure of bodily indulgence. We'll leave it at that. Now, the last chapter, and then we'll close things out. The hardest thing in the world is to be ourselves. Who are we? Our family tells us, society tells us, laws and customs tell us. But what do we say? How do we get to that place of self-knowledge and conviction where we are able to state without doubt, fear, or anger, this is who I am, this is what I believe, this is how I intend to live my life? How do we find our true calling, our soul companions, our destiny? In this task, our mightiest ally is the warrior ethos. Directed inward, the warrior ethos grounds us, fortifies us, and focuses our resolve. As soldiers, we have been taught discipline. Now we teach ourselves discipline. As fighting men and women, we have been motivated, commanded, and validated by others. Now we school ourselves in self-motivation, self-command, and self-validation. The warrior archetype is not the be-all, end-all of life. It is only one identity, one stage in the path to maturity. But it is the greatest stage and the most powerful. 
It is the foundation upon which all succeeding stages are laid. Let us be then warriors of the heart and enlist in our inner cause the virtues we have acquired through blood and sweat in the sphere of conflict. Courage, patience, selflessness, loyalty, fidelity, self-command, respect for elders, love for our comrades and of the enemy, perseverance, cheerfulness in adversity, and a sense of humor, however terse and dark. So you guys just got a little snippet of the warrior ethos. Um, if I remember by the time I publish this to put a link to the Amazon page for it, uh, like I said, I'd highly recommend you guys all get it. It's one that uh, you can read through over and over again. It's uh, you know a, a sort of code to develop. Uh, and like I said, you know, being a warrior isn't the end-all be-all but it's an important step to discovering who you are and what you are about. I love the Captain America line. I've told it to you guys before where he says, uh, and I should have had this pulled up. He says that your duty is to stand like a tree beside the river of truth. And when the whole world tells you, move, you say no. You move. So, this has been a quick shot with the Pint, Pipe, and Cross podcast. I said quick. It's actually been about 30 minutes now. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed this. Let me know uh, if you guys like these little uh, walk through some inspiring books, and we can keep doing stuff like this. Hopefully, next time, James will be able to join me. Uh, James, we missed you. Uh, we hope to have you back soon. Uh, but keep uh, keep an eye out. In the next couple of weeks, unfortunately not next Monday, but hopefully soon after, we will be able to release the newly recorded greatest podcast in the world. This has been the Pint, Pipe, and Cross. If you'd like to send us a message, Pint, Pipe, and Cross. No, the Pint, Pipe, and I'll put a link to it. We have an email address. Send us an email. We love to hear from you guys. Also, find us on Facebook, Pint, Pipe, and Cross Podcast. Uh, give us a five-star and a review on iTunes, if you please. And please feel free to spread the message. Keep telling people about the podcast. Uh, let's make this a thing. All right, sorry for the awkward extra. Peace.